Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Always a great privilege to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. And we're in the month of Elul. Elul is a, today is actually the 13th day of the month of Elul. And Elul is a very important month in the Jewish calendar because it's the month through, uh, in which we prepare for the great Yomei Hadin, the days of judgment, which are not far away. Uh, two weeks time, Shabbos two weeks will be Rosh Hashanah, followed by Yom Kippur and then Sukkot. And the reason why Elul is a significant spiritual time is because according to our holy tradition, when the Jewish people arrived at Mount Sinai, Moses went up to receive the Torah after God had revealed himself to the nation of uh, two and a half, three million people, heard God's voice, saw God. The only religion is Judaism that claims that there was a divine revelation to the entire nation as opposed to just one single individual. Why should I believe it's a single individual? But uh, I should believe an entire nation when they all corroborate and say exactly the same thing, that that's what happened, because indeed that did happen. That God revealed himself to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai after he took them out of Egypt. And Moses then, after the first two commandments, God said to the people, the, it was such a powerful spiritual experience that they Souls were blown out of their bodies. Um, the Malachim restored their souls back to their bodies. First commandment, Hashem souls blown out. Second commandment, souls blown out their bodies. So after the second commandment, the Jewish people said to Moshe, okay, Moshe, we get the message. We see that this is real and legitimate. The creator of the universe is now revealing himself to the Jewish people. Um, but it's a little, the electricity is too powerful for us. We can't handle it. You go up the mountain and you receive the commandments from the creator, from God, and then come down and you share them with the rest of the Jewish people. And so Moses goes up, goes up for 40 days and 40 nights. He comes down and the Jewish people have miscalculated that they thought he was supposed to come out, come the day before, but the day he went up, they counted as day one. It wasn't day one. It had to be 40 complete days, they were told. 40 days, and it was supposed to be complete days. They misinterpreted the instruction, and therefore they thought Moshe was dead and not coming back to them, and they built the calf, which was supposed to be an intermediary between them and Hashem. Moshe comes down with the luchos, the tablets. He sees the calf. He shatters the tablets on the calf, and breaks the calf, and uh, and he then goes up another 40 days and 40 nights. He comes down again to ask for forgiveness, to ask Hashem to forgive the Jewish people for this terrible miscalculation. Um, and uh, he then returns. Hashem says to him, I forgive the Jewish people, but come up again, come up the mountain another 40 days and 40 nights. That was on Rosh Chodesh Elul, the first day of the month of Elul. And Moshe then returns 40 days later, which is Yom Kippur, with a second set of luchos, the second set of tablets. And therefore we know that 
these 40 days from the beginning, from Rosh Chodesh Elul up until Yom Kippur are days of divine mercy and days of forgiveness. And obviously culminating in Rosh Hashanah, which, in two, which is in two weeks time, and then Yom Kippur, the day when Hashem um, atones and forgives for all of our transgressions. But we have to do the work ourselves. We can't just like, you know, sit back and not do anything. It doesn't happen by itself. We have to participate in the process and be um, willing participants in order to be able to achieve this great powerful renewal that happens at this time of year and a atonement and a cleansing of all of our various of all of our transgressions. And so that's why it's a very auspicious time. We do a number of things at this time in Elul because it's a momentous, important time in the year. For example, um, we say Psalm 27, Chafzayin, uh, after our davening at night in and in the mornings, in Shacharis, uh, Mizmur de David, um, which is a very powerful psalm, the David Mizmur, and it uh, captures a lot of the spirit of this time. We blow the shofar every morning. So after Shacharis every morning, we blow the shofar from Rosh Chodesh Elul all the way up until Rosh Hashanah in order to remind us, in order to arouse us, in order to move us back towards Hashem and towards Tshuva. Um, there are also a few other things that we do at the time of Elul. We uh, try and uh, increase and upgrade our mitzvah observance, our Torah study, and our giving of tzedakah. These are important things that we need to do at this time to repair us, get us ready, get our house in order for Rosh Hashanah. Um, you'll notice that there are many charity campaigns that are going on now and within the Jewish community, specifically at this time because it's a time of tzedakah, Elul, as we're working up to Rosh Hashanah and trying to um, and trying to clock up more merits on our part uh, before the great and awesome days of judgment. Um, my community had a charity campaign on Sunday, and Baruch Hashem was very successful, and we thank all those that participated. We're very grateful. Um, also, we do, we actually say slifers. Slifers are these very um, intense and beautiful prayers that we say before Rosh Hashanah and during Aserah Simei after Rosh Hashanah. So we start saying slichas, usually it's the week before Rosh Hashanah, so we'll start saying slichas um, the, the week before Rosh Hashanah. Um, so soon we'll be saying slichas, um, so slichas will begin on um, on Saturday night, the 9th of September, Sunday the 10th of September. Okay, good. So that's the power and beauty of this time, Elul. And there actually was such a beautiful connection to the month of Elul, in last week's Pasha, in Pasha's Kiseitse, um, the, there's a beautiful reference of the Zohar and Orachayim HaKadosh in regards to Elul um, from the Pasha, which we will share in a moment after we return. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We've been talking about the month of Elul, a very important time to work on our spirituality, to give our souls some nourishment and nutrients, and to try and uh, repair whatever has been damaged through the year on in our spiritual account and return to our service of Hashem. And there's a beautiful reference to that in last week's Pasha. Last week we, re- we read Pasha's Kisavo. Kisaitse, sorry, this week's Kisavo. Last week was Kisaitse. And the Torah tells us a fascinating halacha 
with regards to a war being waged by the Jewish people. So there was such a thing called the Milchemes Roshus, certain wars took place. Um, obviously, usually in the ancient world, wars were, world wars were territorial to protect your territory. And the Torah says if there's such an incident that the nation has to go out to war, and obviously that has to be justified and there's a number of criteria which have to be fulfilled um, in order to wage war, and the, and the Jewish soldiers were successful in the battle, and they saw a beautiful woman amongst the enemy that they defeated. Um, and in ancient times, when an army won a war, so the victorious soldiers would be free to take all that they wanted. They would take all the wealth and all the possessions and all of the women of the defeated nation. It was standard practice in the ancient world which was very brutal. And the Torah understood that. And the Torah says that if a Jewish man sees a woman who he wants to take as a wife, as Jews we are not allowed to be involved in premarital sex. If we want to uh, be a man and woman together in a sexual relationship, that's only in the sanctity and security of a marriage. And so if a Jewish man wants to marry this woman, um, he would have permission to do so as long as he followed the, a certain procedure. And that would be that she would be given time to mourn for the loss of her family. She would then be taken by this victorious soldier. And she would be wear, she would wear clothes of mourning, sackcloth. She would shave her hair and mourn, grow her nails and mourn. The Pasuk says, She'll cry and mourn for the loss of her home, her mother, her father, for a month, Yerech Yamin. And if after that process he still wants to marry her, then he could marry her. Um, so that's the halacha, very interesting. So the Zohar, quoted by the Arizal, quoted by the Orachaim, said that that Yerech Yamin, that month that she cries for Avia Vemeh, for mother and father, that's the month of Elul. Because the month of Elul is a time where we're crying. What's Avia for our father? The Zohar says we're crying for our Kodesh Baruch Hu, that's Hashem. And Imea is Knesset Yisrael. Elul is a time when we identify and realize that we have strayed away from our home and that we miss our Father in Heaven and that we miss our connection to our family, our people, Klai Yisrael, the Jewish people. So Elul is the time when we recognize that we have moved far away and we long to return home, we long to come back to our mother and father, to Hashem and to the Jewish people. And there's a beautiful pasuk, a beautiful verse in Tehillim Kufiutes. It's the last pasuk, it's the last verse in Psalms chapter 119. So if you're at home and you have a book of Psalms, you can look this up. It's Psalm Kufiutes 119. The very last verse in chapter 1, it's a very long chapter, 119. And the Pasuk says, That I was mistaken and I was um, incorrect, like a se'oved, like a lost sheep. Bikesh avdecha. And uh, so we request, Bikesh avdecha means, Hashem, seek out, search for your servant. Because your mitzvahs I haven't forgotten altogether. So the Pasuk is saying that even when we're completely lost like a sheep. So what does it mean to be lost like a sheep? Rabbi Sol Slant explains and says 
that a human being can be lost, but the human being can find out where to go. A human being has memory of where they came from, of who their family is, of what their address is. They can find their way back to where they're going. Today we have a GPS that we follow, and even though we may be lost, so the uh, GPS is recalculating and we can find our way back. But a sheep that's lost is completely lost. A sheep that's lost has got no recollection of where it came from and where it's going and where it's, it's, uh, the herd is. And so that's completely lost. So, so Ravi Shalom says that's the imagery here of David Hamelech. He's saying that even if you're so lost like a sheep, like you're completely out there in the wilderness without any connection or recollection of where you came from and where you're going, even so, we ask Hashem, please seek out and search for your servant. Help me come back. Help me find my way back. Because I haven't forgotten altogether. I've got some sort of connection. I have some sort of, of um, hold onto my heritage and my tradition and my identity as a Jew. So even though I may have strayed and I may be very lost like a sheep, there still are still vestiges that remain that I'm holding on to. So seek out your servant and help me come back. That is the focus. That is the um, work this month, the month of Elul, is that we identify where we are, we recognize how far we've strayed, and we um, are committed to turning home, coming home, um, coming back to Hashem and coming back to the Jewish people. So that's a lot of the work and focus on of the month of Elul. And there's a beautiful word to the Sfas Emes who says in the name of his grandfather, Chidush Arim. says that every month within the Hebrew calendar has a muzzle, has a zodiac. As we know, you know, the star signs or something that are quite well known and popular in the world. So they all come from the the Jewish star signs. It comes from the Torah. It's part of our tradition that each month each month has a sign. The star sign for the month of Elul is a basula. A basula is a virgin, because the month of Elul represents the part of all of us that is pure and pristine, that is untouched. We all have that within us. We all have that spiritual spark. That cannot be contaminated no matter what we've done and where we've been. And Elul is the time to access that pure and holy spark that is untouched. Elul is the time to, to identify that aspect within ourselves, within our soul, within our lives. And once we go back to that pristine spark, so then we can, we, then we can start again and then we can Elevate and we can um, fan the flame of that spark. We can ignite that spark and we can then make our return back to truth, back to Hashem, back to holiness. So that's why the Swasema says Elul is the month of Basula, is the month of finding that pure spark, that pure point within all of us. And that's why Elul is Anila Dodi Vadodili. That's what the month of Elul. So it says in of the Pasuk in Shir Hashirim which is the expression of love and connection between Hashem and the Jewish people. And Shomo uh, HaMelech writes, Anila Dodi Vadodili, I am for my beloved, and my beloved is for me. So Anila Dodi is Aleph, the, the, the first letter of those four words, Anila Dodi Vadodili, 
spells Elu. Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed. Ani, Ludodi, Vedodi, Li. So those four words are a hint to Elu. That I am for my beloved, my beloved, beloved is for me. That's the month of Elu. So what's the Ani, Ludodi, I am for my beloved? I recognize that I've strayed from my beloved. I recognize that I love my beloved. I recognize that I have a spark within me that is pure and untouched. And even though I may have wandered off the path, I still want to connect to that pure part of my being, and I want to connect with my beloved. So when we do that work of Anila Dodi, of identifying the purity within ourselves, and that we strayed from Hashem, then the Dodi Li, then Hashem will come back to us. Then Hashem will be Keshavdecha, will, will search out your servant, will find us, and will bring us back home. So that's the the work of this month, which is a, a very special time, a very holy time, a great opportunity for all of us. And please, God, we should all do the work that we need to at this time in order that we're ready, in order that it's in place, in order that we enter the Yom Hadin, the Yom Hadin, the great days of judgment, um, in the right way, with the correct attitude, having done the work, having done the preparation. You know, if you are preparing for something, like, for example, I had my big charity campaign on Sunday, as I mentioned. So there was a lot of work that went in beforehand. If we... If that work wasn't done, so then, you know, one can't expect to be successful um, when it happens. Likewise with the Rosh Hashanah. Unless we do the work, unless we prepare ourselves, it's a, it's, the Rosh Hashanah is a cosmic court case. Um, so if a person enters into a court case and they haven't done their homework and the defense team of lawyers hasn't put together a case about around which they will base the defense, so then they're going to be taken out by the prosecuting lawyers. Um, they will, you know, certainly be be completely defeated. It's the same with us. Unless we've done the work before Rosh Hashanah and we have put together our defense, so then, unfortunately, there's not much chance we'll succeed in the, the din that will take place on Rosh Hashanah. So Elul is that time of Anila Dodi, of reaching out to Hashem, of connecting to that spark within, of identifying that we strayed, and Dodili, then Hashem will help us come back and help us be ready and prepared for a new beginning which takes place with Rosh Hashanah, Asher Shemesh and Yom Kippur. So there's something else I wanted to mention also with regard to the, this very fascinating and interesting dispensation of the Eshes Yafis Torah. This um, halacha that we just mentioned about a woman that's found um, when you defeat your enemies – and the, a Jewish soldier can marry her if uh, the, the, the procedures that the Torah lays out are followed. So why is that so? Um, why do we allow this for the Jewish soldier? Why don't we just say it's Asur, it's prohibited. We do that very quickly and confidently with, with many, many things. A observant Jew, many things are prohibited to an observant Jew. Um, we have many prohibitions with regards to our eating we have many prohibitions with regards to our behavior on Shabbos and Yom Tif. We have many prohibitions with regards to what we're allowed to say and what we're not allowed to say. Um, so why don't we just say it's Asur. Sorry, my friend. No go. This is prohibited by God, by the Torah. And game over like we do with everything else. So there's a fascinating Rashi in last week's Pashi. Rashi says, the great commentator Rishon, who lived a thousand years ago, Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki. So he writes on the words, V'lakachta l'cha le'isha that he can take this woman as a wife, Rashi writes, Lord Dibra Torah The Torah is speaking to the Yetzirah, based on the Gemara in Kedushin. 
שאם אין הקדוש ברוך הוא מתירה, יישאנה באיסור. Because the Gemara says that if Hashem doesn't allow for this soldier to, to take this woman and marry her following those rules that are, the, are prescribed by the Torah, so he'll do it anyway. If he's not allowed to do it, Beheter, he'll do it Beisur. If he's not allowed to do it in a, in a permitted way, he'll do it in a prohibited way. So Hashem understood the, the psychology, the makeup, the mindset of the soldier. And therefore, um, if, I, if, if, like the Torah says with everything, no, you can't do it, if that was the case, so the, the, the soldier would do it anyway, um, and would go ahead and, and, and not stop it. Um, so that's an interesting thing, isn't it? We say, we don't say that regards to any other mitzvah in the Torah. So let's say, you know, I've got a thing for cheeseburgers. I want a cheeseburger. Right? So, the Torah doesn't say to me, yes, I know you've got a big desire for that and drive for that. And once a month, on Rosh Chodesh, the first day of every month, you can have a cheeseburger. Because if you're not allowed that, you would do it anyway. So we don't say that. We don't say that a person can have, you know, um, seafood, the prohibited seafood, like prawns and crayfish and all those things. Because if we don't allow a person to, we can do it once in a while. Because if we don't allow to, you do it anyway. This is the only example in the entire Torah where we say because the drive is so strong, there has to be a route to do it in a permissible way. Otherwise, a person wouldn't be able to resist that temptation and they would do it in a prohibited way. Why is that? And the reason is, and it's a beautiful insight, this, and it's a great indic- uh, expression, uh, an example of the Torah's understanding of the makeup of a human being. That the Torah understands that when it comes to our sexual desires and drives, it's a very powerful force within a human being. And it needs to be respected and it needs to be channeled and it needs to be worked with in a very serious way. And so this example of when the soldier, you know, one could only imagine what it's like for a soldier on the front lines and every moment their life is in danger and their bullets flying in every direction and one step to the left, to the right, they could be killed. And their friends are being killed all around them. And the, the passion and the intensity and the fear and the exhilaration, those emotions are absolutely um, at their maximum for a soldier in battle. And now they've succeeded in winning the battle. And now, you know, all, all, all of that fear is, is, has passed and the, the jubilation, the joy of the victory. And now there's a beautiful woman. And the enemy, they completely plunge and, and, uh, help themselves to everything that their enemies own because they've defeated those enemies. Um, and now there's this beautiful woman. So the, the, the drive and the passion and the emotions of the soldier at that moment are so exaggerated and so strong that he won't be able to resist it unless there is a permissible route that he could follow and take her. That's what the Torah is telling us over here. That's the only exception where there has to be a permitted route, otherwise a person wouldn't be strong enough to resist if it was prohibited. And we see that the Torah has all, at utmost respect for our sexual drive and motivation. There's a Gemara in, um, in Yuma, Daf Samach Test, that tells us that our sages saw that the drive for Avod Zorah was so powerful and strong um, this was at the times of the destruction of the Second Temple, which is about two and a half thousand years ago. 
And the, the, the sages realized that Jewish people wouldn't be able to resist their temptation. And disaster was on its way. And so they removed that drive within human uh, existence, within the world. They removed the drive for Avodah Zorah. They exorcised it from the reality of the world. And so it was taken away. So there's no such thing anymore of that pull for Avodah Zorah. It was very strong in those days. Um, so they saw that Arias was the same thing, that sexual drive was very, very powerful within a human being and would be a source of great um, of great suffering and great um, destruction because we wouldn't be able to handle it properly. And so they wanted to remove the sexual drive from a human being. And a basco, which we, the Gemara says in Yuma, that a voice descended from heaven and said, you can't do that because if you do that, remove the sexual drive, so then the world will be destroyed. So then there won't be any future to humanity. There won't be any future generations. People won't have children. And uh, and so it wasn't allowed. So we see how, how powerful and how strong it is in the eyes of our sages and in our holy tradition. There's also a Gemara Kesuvah stuff, Mem, that talks about um, if there was a marauding a non-Jewish force that entered into a Jewish town, and they, uh, they, you know, did what they wanted to do. They stole, they raped, they pillaged. Um, so there's a chazaka, there's an expectation that it's assumed that Jewish women were violated. There's an assumption that the Jewish women would be violated. Um, and the, but there's not the same assumption that the wine, the Jewish wine, would have been drunk. So they're all halachas about wine and, and non-Jews drinking Jewish wine because usually the, the wine was used for avodah for different practices of idol worship. So the, if the uh, non-Jews came into town and they helped themselves to whatever they wanted, the expectations assumed that the Jewish women are violated, but it's not assumed that the Jewish wine has been drunk. So we see this drive for sexuality is very, very strong and powerful in a human being. And it's very important that we we work with it. It's very important that we understand that and that we, um, and that we deal with ourselves accordingly. In other words, we don't just ignore it, but rather we respect it and we grapple with that. We work with that within our development and growth as a human being, which we will discuss a little bit further upon our return. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're discussing how the Torah acknowledges and understands the deep passions within a human being and how strong the sexual drive is for a human being. And uh, that's why within Judaism, we, as I mentioned earlier, only allow a sexual relationship within the bounds, within the sanctity of uh, and framework of a marriage. Because um, only such a relationship, which is uh, committed, a lifelong relationship, should have the benefits of the powerful connection that takes place between a man and a woman as a result of a sexual relationship. Um, and so sexuality, according to Judaism, is a very powerful thing, and it's there to enhance that relationship. It's there to build that relationship. It's there to ensure that the relationship thrives, and it's something that cannot be separated from 
the emotional and spiritual connection between a couple. In other words, unfortunately, the way the world views sexuality is it's like any other pleasure that a human being enjoys in this world. We, we enjoy eating, we enjoy sleeping, we enjoy sexuality. And therefore, it can be used in that way, in an empty and superficial way. In Judaism, that is a complete distortion of a diamond. It's taking something that's so beautiful and so powerful and so significant and so valuable and dragging the diamond in the mud. That's what happens when one separates the emotional and spiritual side of sexuality from the physical side. And so therefore within Judaism, the um, the beauty of sexuality is only allowed when there is that emotional connection and that spiritual bond between a couple. And that's why the Gemara says, Ish ve'isha zachu, shechina b'nehem. When a man and woman merited, so the shechina, God's presence is there. And it's very interesting that Judaism's view of sexuality is very different to that of of other religions, um, in particular Christianity, because within Christianity, sexuality is viewed as like a kind of a necessary evil. It's like, you know, it, it's something that's a physical indulgence that should be removed, that should be, uh, you know, ideally, if a person was really spiritual, they wouldn't indulge in this physical pleasure of the flesh. And therefore, to be a holy person, you go to your monastery, um, you, you go to your ashram, that's how a person is truly holy. Judaism doesn't agree with that. Judaism completely disagrees with that. Judaism says that the real holy person will take these great passions and drives in within the human being and channel them towards spirituality and use these drives to serve God and to get closer to God. So everything fits in that. So whether it's wearing nice clothing, we wear beautiful clothing on Shabbos and Yom Tov, we honor Hashem's special days by wearing beautiful clothing. We have delicious meals on Shabbos and Yom Tov. And we, we don't say you can't eat and you have to only have, you know, bread and water. On a Shabbos and Yom Tov, we have delicious, lavish meals because the way we enjoy Hashem's special day Shabbos is a special day because it's Zechel, Ma'as remember the creation of the world. Yom Tov, each Yom Tov has its own special character and nature. And we elevate those holy days by having delicious meals. And likewise, sexuality within Judaism is a very important part of developing oneself spiritually, using this powerful drive in order to enhance a lifelong relationship and have Shalom bias in order that there's peace in the home, and, we, and Hashem's presence is there in the home. So as opposed to running away from sexuality, we use it and it enhances our spiritual growth and journey and develops a relationship, a marriage, which is the greatest platform of human development. Within a marriage, we grow more than in any other area of our lives. And that's why we place so much focus and emphasis on the home, on creating a home where there's shalom, where there's peace and where there's love, and where there is, um, and where there's unity, and that then becomes the foundation to bring new souls into the world, and those souls are nurtured and are developed within that environment of love in the home, and the sexuality of the couple, of the husband and wife, is very important in creating that powerful relationship and that unity between husband and wife, and it, and through the sexuality comes the uh, the new generation, so new children are conceived and born, and then they are brought up in that environment of love and of respect and of peace and of unity.
So that's that's how God designed the system. So sexuality is a big important part of that system if it's used in the right way and channeled in the right way. However, as we know in our modern times, sexuality can be very severely abused and misused and misunderstood. And that's very, very sad. And it results in a feeling of loss and of superficiality and of emptiness and of depression. When, when sexuality, in particular, you know, men are a little bit, uh, men can be obsessed with sexuality and it could be something that completely consumes them. Um, we know that the most popular websites in the world are the, um, the websites of pornography. Second is gambling. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's something that men have to learn to channel and control. Pornography is completely prohibited according to the Torah because it's taking sexuality, which is so pristine and holy and, and completely destroying it and turning it into a physical animalistic act and taking out the spiritual and emotional side of it, um, which is very sad. The sexuality itself is, is, is not the same and, and, uh, it uh, takes it, it removes from the individual the ability to connect with the person in a deep, holy, pure way, because they are so tainted by um, the distortion that they've seen. Um, and that's one of the great problems of our modern time is that our t- our youth have access to pornography, and it really is a scourge within the modern world and something that does great damage and is very destructive destroys marriages, destroys um, people's perception of relationships, what relationships are. It destroys the ability to conduct a healthy um, relationship of love and of respect and of unity. So, therefore, it is important that parents need to be very aware of this with their children. There's no question. If your child has a cell phone, uh, I'm talking about the boys, not the girls. The girls usually are a bit more normal in the area of sexuality, unless they've been, uh, you know, completely misled and corrupted by our society. But generally, a, a woman doesn't have a problem like this, like a man does. A man is a, uh, and often, very often, women that get married um, are a little bit surprised by the monster within their husband. You know, the, the women don't necessarily appreciate how strong that drive is within men, and, and it's not man's fault. That's how Hashem created us. That's how Hashem made men. And a big part of a man's spiritual journey in this world is channeling, is controlling, is um, is uh, being on top of and and being in control of these very powerful urges and drives that he has. And that's why we encourage couples to get married young because then they have that expression sexually, and it's it's very healthy for a man to be married. It's unhealthy. Totally, as Adam Levato, the Torah says, it's not good for a man to be alone. It's important to be married. And then they can build a foundation which is holy in terms of their sexual drive and desire. And of course, that also there are halachic um, uh, parameters within the marriage as well of sexuality, but, uh, but the, the, they're not limiting. They are very, very clever and they uh, enhance the relationship in a very healthy way. Um, so it's very important that parents must realize that if your child has ex- has a smartphone, and there's no filters on it. There's no question the boys are looking at pornography. There's no question. It's like almost 100%. And so it's important that we have these conversations with our children. And we say sexuality is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. The Torah 
explains to us that it can be something that's magnificent and holy and connects us to God and is the center of a marriage and the glue that holds a couple together. Um, but So within that context, it's a beautiful, holy thing. But if it's abused, it can be very damaging and can be very destructive and cause a lot of distortion and confusion, confusion within a person. So the Torah is quick to recognize the power of sexuality and teaches us with such depth and wisdom the beauty of sexuality and that it should be reserved for the sanctity and the holiness of a marriage and has the power to build a marriage and a unity between a husband and wife in which God's presence is there as well. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. I wanted to end off now just with... Um, a mention of today's day. Today is the 11th of Elul, and today is the yacht site of the great and holy Ben Ishchai, Rav Yosef Chaim of Baghdad. Rav Yosef Chaim was born in the year 1834. He died in 1909, and uh, he was one of the great sages of the Jewish world in the last 150 years. His parents had been childless for 10 years, and finally, his mother made the long journey from Baghdad to Morocco to request a blessing from the renowned Rabbi Yaakov Abu Khatsera. The sage blessed her that she should give birth to a child who would one day illuminate the eyes of Jews everywhere. Less than a year later, she gave birth to Yosef Chaim, who grew up to become the famed Benish Chai. Both his father and grandfather served as chief rabbi of Baghdad, and he inherited the position at age 25. His son later succeeded him in that position. He became one of the greatest modern-day sages. Until today, his rulings are followed religiously by Sephardi Jews worldwide. In Baghdad, he delivered a three-hour sermon every Shabbos for 50 years. He also authored the commentaries Rav Pe'ilim and Ben Yehuyada. He died while returning from a visit to Eretz Israel, and he's buried in Baghdad. So today is the Yot site. Of the Benish Chai, may his Neshamin and Aliyah, and may we continue to learn from his greatness and his guidance to all future generations. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.